welcome to the Where Does It Come From podcast. We all have more and more stuff in our lives and we're beginning to realise that the making, using and disposal of these items can cause harm to those who made them, the planet and even ourselves. I'm Jo Salter, your podcast host, and I'll be talking with some amazing people who've made it their life's work to do something about this, creating businesses, campaigning, writing books and much more to help us understand and make better choices. This time, I'm talking with ex-product designer, now textile researcher, Peter Gorse. He gives us an insight into the chemicals that are routinely added into our clothing. Why do we need them? Are they harmful or not? And what can we do about it? Hello and welcome to Peter Gorse um, and welcome back to the Where Does It Come From podcast. So this week we have our expert Peter Gorse here who's going to talk to us about the chemicals in our clothing. So first of all I'd just like to ask Peter to introduce himself, tell us about what he's interested in, his work that he's doing and basically why he's here. Okay well thanks Joe, for inviting me. Initially, I trained as an industrial designer, so I was involved in product design. Um, I had my own little brand a few years ago, which I did a few products with, and also had a small uh, clothing line, which I tried to try to sell. It was in kind of sportswear. Um, and then more recently, I'm actually doing a research project in textiles. So I kind of got more and more interested in textiles over the years, trying to find out. Um, where, where are you working on your research? Okay, so I'm, I'm based at Cranfield University, which is my local university. So yeah. Oh, right, brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Now, textiles is absolutely fascinating, though, isn't it? And if you think about how much we use textiles in our life, it's not just what we wear, but, I mean, you and I were talking before about sailing boats and all sorts of different things we use textiles for, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I think this is it. I think if you're so from a sort of product designer aspect, then you think, this is a product that, you know, billions and billions of, of manufactured and obviously it is essential because, as we said, we don't go around naked, fortunately. <laughs> Thank goodness, <laughs> so, a bit cold yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, yeah, and so, I mean, I really didn't know very much about them, you know, how they were made, what they're made of. And to be honest, I still don't really know <laughs> very much about them because... Because the kind of what I, I work on just one process in my research uh, project. So I know about that single process. I have to disclose everything I use in it. You know, if I write anything up on it, you've got to like go into quite detail with it. And so I can't hide anything. Um, the results have got to be repeatable. So, you know, it's kind of peer reviewed and things like that. So, um, but that's it. But you, then you kind of realise that that's just one process. I don't know anything about the process before it or hot next to anything. Mm. And then the ones after it. And so so my big kind of bugbear with textiles is that just for me, I kind of want the whole industry to change. And I want them to disclose the processes and the treatments that are used to produce our final garments. And because a, I couldn't, I can't name them. I couldn't, someone puts a garment in front of me 
I wouldn't be able to name the processes and the treatments that have been applied to it. I wouldn't have a clue. No, and then you're quite an expert. So that, that well, trans, but no, in, in your process. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that, that level of transparency is, is an interesting one because, as you know, I'm, I bang on about transparency mm. quite a lot. And I'm talking, I tend to talk more about the, um, how the clothes are made and there's different stages in a supply chain and who's affected by the supply chain and how the fibers are created and that kind of thing but the reason that I was really keen to get you on the podcast is because obviously there's a whole load of transparency that needs to happen around the chemicals and the additives and all of those things that that go into our clothing. I think that yeah so I think you know obviously I think there's maybe people think that there's a lot of emphasis on fibre, that the fibre gives you all the properties for the garment, but that's clearly not the case. So all things like, um, obviously there's some fibres that are give antibacterial properties, but many others like polyester and nylon are really poor in odour control. So they have to have these treatments. Mm. And, and so you think, well, you know, what treatments are they? I mean, one garment to the next, they could have a different chemical that's actually, or chemicals that's providing that function. And you've got no idea. I mean, no. so one of the main, so I looked at one of the main antimicrobial treatments was a, a substance called triclosan. And um, when you look at that, it, um, it's got some hormone disruptor properties. And so you think, do I really want that? in my clothes do I want that next to my skin if I'm playing sport if I'm sweating through the, the fabric and the rest of it mm-hmm. and and I kind of came to the clu- conclusion that I kind of really need to know more so I can make more of an informed decision and the industry will just will just not supply this information to consumers and I can't see them changing because they want to keep control of the narrative of how their products are sold and they just want to keep it all hidden from you and I've, I've been kind of banging on about this for quite a number of years now and obviously it's made no difference whatsoever <laughs> so but you're here I, yeah. so um <laughs> yeah I can't see I so I occasionally I find out something and all I do is I use an online database, a free online database, where I can put a substance name into it. And then it gives me details. And it's, it's a really, it's by a company called Chemsec. And I, they've kind of, I think they've narrowed it down quite a lot more because now it's called the sin list. And so they really only focus on the ones that are quite harmful. So if you put something in there, you know, and it doesn't come back with anything, chances are they don't think it's worth worrying about. So, but okay. if it comes back with something, then, you know, you know, it's got some harmful aspects to it. That's really interesting, Peter, actually, because if you think most of us have no idea what these chemicals are, it's like when you pick up a, a, a food product and you read the list. And I, I, yeah. I think it's almost an emotional blindness, isn't there? You see all these complicated chemical names and you think, oh, I um, I don't know what any of those are. I won't think about them. The people who are producing this product have presumably tested everything and they know that it's safe or they wouldn't be putting it in here. Mm. That's not, 
<laughs> but I think we've had some really good examples that I, I think we should assume that I think it's I don't think we can assume that our products are safe and we've had some really good examples of that with um, waterproofing stain resistance with PFCs which were not just used in textiles but they were used in other consumer products like cooking utensils you know all these non-stick applications so they were absolutely brilliant at performing you know they were the best waterproofing you could get for your textiles but unfortunately the you know the chemical companies that um, created them they knew quite a lot of information about them which they hid even from the regulators goodness and and the price that they pay for that you know they may get fined you know, they'd make a lot more money by putting them into the system. But, you know, imagine if you were on the board of that company and you knew that these substances were incredibly persistent, that nature couldn't break them down. You knew that they were an aquatic carcinogen, a probable human carcinogen, and they just went, yeah, I think we should use them. Because companies because they'll make zillions. Profit. Yeah, companies are driven on profit yeah. and our legislation is not robust enough. Yeah, to, um, and we're still using happening. them. So it took, it took the scientific community, and I don't really regard myself as a scientist, yeah, but we, um, even though I'm, you know, doing a science project at a university, but um, a science research, but, but um, the thing is, it's just that it took 30 years for the scientific community to get enough evidence against one of the main PFCs used and for it to be banned. It took 30 years. Oh, my God. And all the industry did was switch to another one within the same family group. So PFCs are still being used, you know, in consumer products. I mean, packaging, food packaging, you know, all your pizza boxes, it's all PFCs. It's re they're really, I think, you know, obviously I'm not, I'm not, you know, I have to say I'm not a chemist. I don't have a chemical background. So I can only give, you know, my opinion based on certain papers that I've read. Um, and I don't think we should go near them. Mm. But how do you, I mean, I know some textiles are saying now they're PFC free, but, you know, we've got eco brands that are still using PFCs in textiles. So the, the interesting thing that always seems to be that the burden of proof and the burden of research actually is not, they, they, they have to, it has to be proven that the thing isn't safe. It's almost like they can put yeah. anything they want into something. Yeah. And then it's only like you say 30 years later or whatever, that you might mm. have finished the research to find it isn't safe. What happens in the meantime? Well, I think the thing is, so you're exactly right, Joe. You basically can use anything you like. Yeah, it, anything goes. And so the safety net is that they say you can use anything you like as long as you use a very, very low dose of it. And I think yeah. that's important to say that. So, you know, there could be, say, 8,000 chemicals that are used in textiles. They reckon about 5% of them have got some quite nasty properties to them. And there are restrictions on them. And they can only use very, very low amounts of them. But then you think well, we're, we're making billions of garments, we're all shedding zillions of, you know, microfibers, we're breathing them in, we're eating them. Is there, is there an issue with an accumulative effect of all mm. these tiny doses of, 
you know, these quite nasty substances. So, well, you have to say the majority of substances used are probably, you know, are kind of are fine, you know, fine for... Fine-ish. <laughs> fine-ish, fine-ish yeah. yeah. Um, but, and, and, but then a small percentage are not. And it's, it's a tricky one. My, I have this very sort of naive, even though I'm quite old now, I still have this quite naive, idealistic opinion that if you're prepared to use these substances, you should have to disclose them. Oh yeah, no, definitely. Well, that's right. never going to happen. No, but I thought I think most people probably think that they that it's safe, and and I think you're right about the cum- cumulative. Can't say that word. No, um, I can't. Effect, <laughs> the effect of it all. <laughs> so, for example, if you've got um, something in one garment you're probably wearing 10 or 15 different garments it could be all building up on you and as you say the shedding part of that I mean the one of the main reasons I started up where does it come from um back in 2012 2013 when I was looking at it was because I'd done some work with other brands and I remember hearing that um formaldehyde was routinely added to um, school uniforms to make them last a lot longer and I had two very small children at the time and I was thinking I'm not putting my kids in formaldehyde covered clothing and that's kind of why I started up the brand I was thinking we have there has to be a better way of of doing this than than putting because we if I say formaldehyde to even a a fairly um, well-informed lay person you think no that's that's a hideous nasty chemical yeah well, the thing is, formaldehyde is a known carcinogen. You know, I think there's quite a lot of people yet, and it is used in textiles. You know, it's still used in textiles today. It's been used for like decades and decades, but they don't have to tell you. And obviously the reason why they don't want to tell you is that it would put you off buying, the, mm. you know, the product, the garment. So, so that all these, you know, some, they're hidden. You know, yeah. they are, they're there, they're in there. And they're in there in very, very low amounts. But they won't tell you, oh, oh, by the way, we put a little bit of carcinogens in your in your T-shirt. We put a little bit of hormone disruptor chemicals. Oh, I mean, they could, you know, you, you could quite easily. I mean, they know what they're using. You know, it's probably the factories that are buying. Because a lot of the brands don't necessarily own the factories. No. You know, they, so they have contracts with factories within their supply chain but so it's probably the factories that are buying the substances to use you know to actually apply to the to the yarns or the fabrics mm. so they're but they're buying them they're using them i think what happens is that you know so the brands will they know what this legislation is so like they know what they're saying in the uk well in europe the reach uh they'll, they'll know what they can use in within the reach regulations and how much they can use so they'll they'll devise a spec sheet and they'll provide that to their manufacturers in their supply chains. And they'll say, you know, this is what we're permitted to use, you know, to produce the garment. And then maybe it's a documentational check with reach to see that they're complying to, to the, you know, to the brands complying to the regula- regulations. I remember ringing up reach. I was asking them a few questions and you realize that it's not there for consumers. It's there to help brands it's there to help ensure brands adhere to the latest legislation that they stick to it. And I'm sure brands do test some of their products and they'll probably send them to independent labs for them to be tested. You know, I've no idea, you know, how, how often they do this. 
could say if you're making hundreds of thousands of garments, I don't know how many you test. But then I think I tried to ask a brand, would you publish the results from those independent lab tests? See, again, if, if what the manufacturers said they were doing actually, you know, came out in the final garment to actually check that, they said they wouldn't publish it. No, because I guess um, they don't want people knowing that there's any of these things. Well, say they would say they found that there were higher levels than something that, you know, that's the Mm. spec that they wanted. I mean, what do they do then? Do they scrap the whole Mm. production run and start again from scratch? Or I don't don't know what would happen with that. No, that's interesting. Well, that brings me on to one of the questions I wanted to ask you then, because you said very much that the the process is there for the brands and the... um, businesses to understand what what is actually in there how as a green thinking customer can we find out what hazardous chemicals might be in the clothing that we're wearing I mean is is there information on our labels well obviously there's nothing on the labels is there I mean you know clothing labels they tell you the main the main fiber content they don't tell you what it's been treated with and and they just say where has it been the country of origin and then again that not isn't necessarily because they've got such extensive supply chains there'll be bits the diner we're done in one country that you know they're really transported around the globe to get various you know parts of the processes completed so I mean that gives you a clue that they may die in one country they may fabricate in another and again treatments and so it's it's a huge complex supply chain that perhaps with covid and future pandemics we put under more pressure maybe we need to do more of this in singular countries rather than in multiple countries you know maybe there will be be pressure on that because it'll be more difficult for them to do it that way Mm. yeah but But, but if if everything is so um fragmented i suppose into different countries it's even harder for anyone to ever find out what the chemicals that happen in each particular process isn't it yeah i don't think i mean you can't i mean you need to go to the factories but the factories will probably you know they won't tell you because they know they've signed contracts with you know there are people i mean brands do i I know that brands do have things called restricted substance lists and sometimes they publish those Mm. but it's just like a huge list of of chemicals that you know that they that you know they give out that which really imply that's what they're using Mm. I remember asking one of them so I I I picked one from an RSL and I said you know do you use this in your garment and they wouldn't they wouldn't admit to using it I said well you've declared it on your RSL I mean surely you're using it well we only we use a certain threshold and when we use that threshold or below we don't have to tell anyone mm. but that's always that's always you know if you pick a hazardous substance they say well you know we're meeting all the regulations it's below this threshold we don't have to tell you mm. so so they don't that's, um, that's so it's a real I mean I can find so you know I kind of get interested so a couple of things that I looked at recently so I looked at mercialized um so mercialized is used as a process for cotton and linen. And I, I kind of knew, I knew a little bit about benefits because it can increase the strength of fiber. It makes it more absorbent, which is why I was looking at it. So it's easier to dye. 
um, gives a bit more luster as well. So there's some really good benefits to it, but I didn't really know how it was achieved. And so but because I knew the name of the process, I could then find the chemicals that they used in that process. Mm. You know, I wasn't picking it because I thought the chemicals were bad. Uh, I picked it because I was just interested in finding out more about the process. So if you know, sometimes if you know the process or if you know, you know, the treatment, then you can, it gives you, you know, it gives you an opening in to try and find out exactly what's been used. So, mm. so in that case, immersalized, they used strong alkalis and like sodium hydroxide and they put the fibers through that intention and then they have to neutralize it by using a strong acid like sulfuric acid, something like that. But so you think, well, the chemicals are not that bad, but it does leave you, even that for that one process, it leaves you with quite a high, they use quite a high percentage of alkali within the solution. So it's not so easy to, to, to treat it, you know, to neutralize it. You know, the water treatment processes, I read that sometimes they won't accept them because if they've got quite a high residue content in them. So mm. what you need, so what they really need, so when all this wet processing that goes on with our textiles, and, you know, dyeing is a really good example, they need really, really good water treatment facilities. Mm. And obviously that costs a huge amount of money to invest. You know, you know really everywhere where you're doing it, you need access to sophisticated water treatment facilities to clean up the mess from all this mm. well, um, wet processing and if you if you don't have that then then you know you're causing quite a lot of environmental pollution exactly well, it strikes me what you're saying it's a bit like when you get given sort of drugs by the doctor and then you have to take more drugs to sort out the side effects of the first lot of yeah. drugs and it's always like you're it, it, yeah. it's by starting down the putting these hazardous things into our textiles we're opening the door for a lot more to try and neutralize what's already got in there but you can see that you know you can see that they're just sold on the benefits that's the thing you know yeah you know these you know the benefits are there you know consumers want these you know we want to go and walk up mountains and and keep dry you know we need substances that can give you that benefit obviously there's a huge need for them which is what the industry are supplying again we want to you know if we're playing sport wearing head-to-toe plastic which we all are mm. you know pla- they're really bad at odor control so we need antimicrobial treatments mm. so we we don't smell more than we we should <laughs> so <laughs> so i mean there's a huge need for them but it's very difficult to find alternatives the alternatives as well They've got to be. So say there's this thing called green chemistry and there are bodies, you know, they've got like the zero discharge of hazardous chemicals, which is a body that's acting to try and reduce harmful chemicals in textiles and and also in wastewater pollutants. And, you know, they are offering alternatives. You know, they're saying, well, we really want to minimise this and find, you know, a better, safer alternative. But quite often those alternatives are probably more expensive. Yeah, well, that's often the way, isn't it? Yeah, and maybe they don't perform quite as good. Well, I think that's the trouble. I mean, I I think that there's going to have to be some steps back in a way of of what we expect um, textiles to function like. I mean, I'm working with a customer at the moment who they're 
fantastically trying to change out their staff uniforms to be yeah. far more sustainable and ethically made, which is, you know, really laudable. Um, but it can't, one of the stipulations is it can't go back in terms of um, expectation. So they can't suddenly have their staff having to get up and iron their shirt yeah. all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's, a, that's a really difficult one, isn't it? So it just brings me to my next question, which is what kinds of things are, how are textiles changed? What functionality is being added to um, textiles by chemicals? You mentioned um, hiking up mountains. What other kinds of um, functionality is being added by chemical? Well, I mean, there's, there's absolutely loads, isn't there? You mentioned, you know, it's, it's, not that I can think of any now, now you've asked me. <laughs> that's because I'm asking you a question. <laughs> um, but it's the performance quite often comes from the treatment. So, you know, when they're sold. So, you know, we've mentioned waterproofing, easy, you know, Ironing. easy care. Yeah. But you, the point that you made quite often is because we've got multiple processes to get to the final garment, then... You could have a, a chemical that you need in one process to underdo something chemically that was done in the previous process to like, so there's that just to actually, there's that use of chemicals just so you can go along the processing, you know, kind of chain of events for you to get there. The softeners, the thermoplastic yeah. softeners that are used in a lot. I mean, it can, it can be used on natural fibres. I mean, the idea that, you know, you, the idea that just because you choose a natural fibre, it hasn't got, you know, it's natural mm. is is completely wrong, isn't it? Because yeah. they're all processed with synthetic chemicals and some of them are thermoplastics. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was another thing. So I, I've, I've been investigating a little bit about wool because obviously it's a natural fibre. It's got some fantastic properties, breathable, you know, it is breathable unlike... Mm. Um, other fibers. <laughs> um, and um, it's got probably the best odor control naturally. Yeah. I mean, I did a test on that. I so I played an indoor sport and I wore wool shirts, a polyester shirt, and a cotton shirt. And the difference, even though the cotton shirt and the polyester shirt were treated with mm. unknown antimicrobials, and the wool shirt was unbelievable. Oh. You know, I'm a reasonably smelly person when I <laughs> When I, I think if you wore three shirts yeah. at the same time. <laughs> and I was I was shocked. Yeah. I just air dried the wool uh, garment. Well, this is I, this jumper that I'm wearing at the moment, actually. Um, it's a, a company that I know quite well um because we've been to things together, but um it's called um Ted and Bessie. Yeah. And they they have their own flock. Is that right? A flock herd of alpacas in okay. North. I thought it was a flock, a flock flying of alpacas. I don't know what it is. Anyway, alpacas. alpacas yeah. They yeah. have a bunch of alpacas. And yeah. um, when I bought this jumper, I fell in love with it because it's not dyed at all. It's made from the actual colour of the black alpaca. Oh, that is brilliant. Yeah. So, so it's really, really good. Yeah. But I have people probably think I'm really sticky, but I have never washed this jumper. I've never washed it because Catherine, yeah. who runs the business, she basically said to me that natural wool that hasn't been chemically treated doesn't need to be washed. You, you know, you can rinse something with water to get any food debris off or whatever. But then you just hang it up and then it works. It, the odors yeah. sort themselves out. So, you know, I'm a big fan of, of that kind of thing. So, yeah, so wool. So I wanted to find out. I tried to do a wool garment a few years ago. And um, so and I remember buying the yarn and um, and you have that choice. I mean, do you go for a machine wash, washable wool yarn or not? Because wool has 
you know, a few issues with shrinkage and things like that. And um, so I thought I'll, I'll go for the machine washable one. I'll make it a bit easier for myself and things like that. And I remember asking at the time, how is it, you know, how is it treated to get machine washable? And they said it's chlorine treated. Lovely. So I thought, fair enough. Um, but then I read something recently and it said, yeah, um, so wool's got these scales on the surface and the, the chlorine actually kind of destroys those scales a bit. And um, But then it said that they sometimes put a thermoplastic over the top of it. And I thought, really? I mean, and that made me think, I think, well, you know, how many different um, processes are there for you know, treating wool to make it machine washable. When you buy machine washable yarn, um, are you are you just getting the chlorine treated one or are you getting the one that's got a particular thermoplastic sprayed over the top of it? I think yeah. it's back to that, the first point about disclosure again, isn't it? Mm. Rather than companies having to, don't have to say anything if up to certain minimums are not met, they should be disclosing absolutely everything. There should be yeah. somewhere on their websites where customers can go and find out not just a chemical list of the components, but any known side effects or any, yeah. any, any what else is it used for? I mean, formaldehyde is the one that obviously leaps into my mind. You think, well, if you're, if you're using it for meat, then you know tanning leather and things yeah. it can't be particularly helpful for us and, and our skin is our biggest organ and we're putting all these mm. things straight on it you know you know I, I haven't got any left now so I can't go and see and feel it to see if it has anything you know I can feel anything that's been like a plastic's been sprayed on it you know maybe it was maybe it wasn't but it just made me again doubt what I'd actually bought mm. which is and then that's just a, a yarn and then if you think the final garment has been, through, I mean, the yarn's been through certain processes, but the final garment's been through, you know, many, many more. And that's, a, that, that's an interesting thing. I was, I was thinking when, when you were talking, if you look at the various processes that, you know, we both know, but maybe some of the people who are listening don't know, to get a, a garment to, all the way through from fibre to wardrobe, I suppose. Yeah. So looking at the various steps. So first of all, you've got, if it's a natural natural fibre, then you've got the farming. And quite often, if it's not organic, there's all sorts of toxins yeah. put on there, isn't there? Yeah. But if it's not mm. a natural fibre, then there's a huge number of toxins in creating um, a plastic-based fibre. So a good example of that is the... You need uh, something called antimony to, as a catalyst to produce polyester. I mean, obviously, if you're producing polyester, you need chemical plants you know, that are producing the chemicals that, are, that enable you to react these chemicals together to get the polyester. So, and so antimony is used as, and it's quite nasty antimony, it's a bit toxic, and it's used, it's used as a catalyst to make the process more efficient and, and work better. And then... But the idea is, I think, that they say that everything is so bonded together, synthesised together, that it's all safe because the chemical bonds are so strong that, you know, they're not going to come out when you when you wear the garment or anything. And which which sounds, you know, pretty reasonable. So but then I looked at so I looked at a couple of papers and it was on dyeing because I, I part of my research project is about dyeing, but using natural dyes. And this was about dyeing polyester. And a lot of energy is used to dye synthetics. I mean, it's quite a so quite high temperatures. And because of because these 
polyesters, they're thermoplastics. They're affected by heat. And so what happens when polyester is dyed, it's quite well known that antimony just leach out within the dyeing process because of the high energy, you know. So, and so this paper, which was from Sweden, so all the, all the best papers that I've read on chemicals and textiles have all come from Scandinavia. There's this organization called Chemi, the Swedish chemical agent. I don't know what they're called. And this was about, they were trying to analyze if they could reduce the amount of antimony leakage in the dyeing process for, for polyester. So they were looking at do larger diameter threads, you know, leach more than, you know, smaller diameter threads. If they reduce the temperatures by so many degrees, would that affect? Complicated. You know, we don't, you know, I think if you've got a chemistry background, then it's such an advantage with textiles because, mm. you know, as we know that, you know, two thirds of our clothes are, they're a hundred percent chemical product. That's all it is. It is it's synthetic it? chemicals, two thirds. And obviously polyester is like all the graphs with polyester yeah. are going this up way. Cotton is pretty yeah. stagnant. The area that I work in, which is called man-made cellulose fibers, that's actually you know, progressing, that's mm. increasing, which is probably why there's funding for research into that area. So as a, well, as a consumer... I of, don't, I don't. You know, but as a consumer, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's a different, it's a different um, ballpark, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, yeah, if you, you, so you've got these fibres, you're buying something, you're picking up a jumper or a T-shirt and you're thinking, oh, this is cotton, this is wool, that's a natural fibre. There yeah. won't be anything added into that. But then you don't think about the rest of the process. So after you've got your fibres... First of all, you turn your fibres into yarn. Yeah. There's a process there. I, I know that lots of the yarn gets coated in something to make it easier to, to manage. Yeah, this is it. It's all the things about, you know, to make what to make the machines run. Yeah. So I know that sort of in, in my area in uh, regenerated cellulose. So because we're, we're dissolving the cellulose as an input and then we're reforming it, so that, that alters the bonds within the actual cellulose, that alters the hydrogen bonds. And, and so the actual, the reformed cellulose has a different structure than virgin cellulose. Uh, that causes a specific problem, a fibrillation problem, which can lead to pilling in, you know, final garments. So they have to find a solution to that. Mm. So these, so just, there could be like problems inherent within the process that it causes something that you've then got to, find a solution to Matt, I know when I didn't even realize this was an issue when I went to India um, one of the first times um, and went around one of the Cardi cooperatives so Cardi is all about trying to do everything as traditional and natural yeah. as you possibly can and they said um, they were, I was shown they were basically putting rice starch onto okay. the threads and, yeah. I, and, and I said what are you doing that for oh because we want to make it more manageable and to weave yeah. more easily kind of thing and they yeah. said but what actually happens in factories is that they put on chemicals to do that yeah. you know, rather than rice starch you know? yeah because I suppose it's yeah they won't use rice starch that's for no, sure definitely but, you not. see and they probably the reason why they don't use it was because the synthetic chemical will be a, probably a fraction of the cost of the rice starch yeah and that's why that's why they won't use it. So it's all down so, to mass production again, isn't it? Trying to keep and, the prices as low. Yeah. And... So that a fractions of a penny, yeah. you know, if this treatment is just a fraction of a penny more, mm. you know, like you and I might think, oh, well, it's only a little bit more expensive. Yeah. But 
to them because they're making millions, millions of garments of yeah. it's a huge amount of money yeah exactly. and they won't do it no. and, and also because none of us know anything anyway We've including myself yeah then it's you know there's no in, there's no real incentive for them to do it no well really, that, is there? there's yeah, no consumer yeah, I mean, I speak to, you know, I spoke to an academic in the States and I said, and this, she said, there's no consumer pressure for them to disclose anything. No, because they don't know, because people, there's a trust, there's still a trust that if, mm. um, if they're doing it, there must be somebody who's checking up on it. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Yeah. So then you've got you. you I'm, I'm going to keep going back to my process because it helps oh, no. in my head. So <laughs> then we've got we've got the yarn, and then the next thing is either knitting or weaving that into a fabric. And as I said, quite often something gets added to make that more manageable. And then yeah. the whole weaving process, so machine weaving process, yeah. will have a, a huge amount more. Um, well, I think with knitting, for example, I mean the yarns have got to be reasonably strong. If the yarns are too weak, I mean, obviously that's why they, you know, the yarns are twisted in lots of different ways to, and then also multiple yarns are twisted together. So, mm. you know, knitting machines are a strength requirement because otherwise the yarn would just snap. It'd snap, and, you get a and hole. so you you wouldn't get anything. So, mm. you know, but then, but it's yes, there's weaving, knitting, there's non-wovens where non-wovens are like an entanglement, okay. like kind of a random entanglement. So and they've got the dying, I mean, the yeah, dying. dying. I was going to say. I learned a little bit about so the history of it. So with synthetic dye, so this chemist by accident came across the first synthetic dye. Eighteen fifty-six mm, or something. I was Someone that, will yeah. correct me on that or something. But can you imagine how many years ago is that? Like one hundred and seventy odd years, something like that. Yeah. It's um, and it was aniline based. Mm. Yeah. So we're still using aniline today. And if you go and put aniline in the chemsex uh, sin list, you'll get a response. Uh, right, that one's not ignored. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you'll get I'm a response sure because that good. it's a bit nasty. It's a bit nasty, Annalene. You know, there are definitely regulations to use less of it because I've seen, so when I look, so I, one of the dyes that I use in my, I use natural indigo in my process. And that's actually from a farmer in Scandinavia. He actually grows woad, which is, woad is a, is a was a European plant that you can get uh, indigo from. It's not it's not meant to be as strong of indigo as you can get from the Japanese variety or the Indian varieties of indigo, but it, it was a one that would flourish in Europe in our climate. So, and he's 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 got like a woad production which is virtually on an industrial scale now. So he's starting to work with brands supplying natural indigo instead of them using synthetic indigo. I'm not saying that natural dyeing is perfect because it isn't. If you compare, I mean, all I mean, I, I wear jeans just like anyone else. But synthetic. If you look at one process, how synthetic indigo, uh, how synthetic indigo is made, it's you know the starting blocks are aniline, formaldehyde, oh, God. arsenic. <laughs> arsenic. Yeah. These are these are the building blocks of synthetic indigo, oh, and then there's like a whole process that goes on and on and on and on and you need to be a chemist to understand it but you think those are the building blocks of it mm. and i'm sure it's all fine at the end of it but are you but the thing <laughs> but the thing is the thing is i've never seen i've never seen a pair of jeans that i bought disclose anything about aniline no and yet no. they've all got synthetic indigo mm. in them you know yeah. and that's the thing with synthetic dyes that 
And you find a lot with synthetic chemistry, the building blocks of it, quite nasty. You know, the processes might make them a much safer by the time it's all finished. Yeah, because of all the strong chemical bonds. Mm. But you still get instances where there's, you know, there's leakages and things like that. But, and then obviously the, the people that are actually working with them, you know, yeah, definitely. The, the, the I mean, why in the factories that it's all, you know, the dying is like a huge mess mm. for text. I mean, that's one thing we talked about. I mean, I think we should probably have undyed garments. We should oh, have yeah, a much lovely, higher percentage. Yeah. But I will, you know, are we willing? I think if we knew more about the dying processes and the, just the, the enormous pollution they cause, polluting people's drinking water, yeah, you know, we wouldn't want to live next to a dye house. No, would you remember yeah. that a few years ago there was, I think it was in, in somewhere in India, there was these blue dogs because they discovered that these dogs had been going swimming in the river and the dogs came out blue. <laughs> and that, 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 that kind of symbol that showed people, look, this is what's happening to the river. It's, it's blue and you're drinking this and swimming is and yeah. washing your clothes in this. And I know there was a saying um, a few years back um, in, again, it was in, I think it was Bangladesh, actually, where you can always tell what the next year's fashion colour is going to be because that's yeah. the colour the rivers are flowing. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. It's and so, when you so know funny. the building blocks of these synthetic dyes, really nasty mm. substances, and you think, flipping heck. And then I, there was this one thing, there was, um, I can't remember where he came from. He, he was like a, yeah, he, he works with natural dyes. And he did this um, exhibition where he actually dyed sheep he dyed a number of sheep with natural indigo and he got a lot of stick from that from you know people like the an yeah, animal cruelty rights, things yeah. but i was thinking i was thinking you really wouldn't do that with synthetic indigo but going back to natural dyes though i mean that's a, a really interesting it's, it's again it's it's like going back to the natural um processing of fabrics it's taking things that have been done for thousands of years that yeah. we know are I wouldn't say safe, but we know we know about them. We've got experience of working with them. We've got the longer term effects of it and trying to move back towards that. And I read a lot now about people trying to waken up people's interest in natural dyes because it's not just yeah. about not causing harm. It can actually be about doing good because some of the things that they use for dyes actually have benef beneficial health properties for us, don't they? Yeah, so I think um, so. The, the benefits of natural dyes are that I would say as a general statement, they're less toxic than synthetic dyes. So I think that's a, a reasonable thing to say. Mm. Um, and but obviously the disadvantages are that, you know, are you going to use land to grow a large amount of natural dyes when there's things like food production and places for people to live? So that's a huge problem with them. The benefits of them are that, they can be they can be antioxidants. They can be anti-inflammatory. So they you have this medicinal properties, but also if you imagine that I the way I think of it now is that I think synthetic dyes are really one-dimensional because they're kind of really perfect because they've been purposely designed uh, stable colors, you know, bright, permanent. You know, they've been purposely designed to work exactly how you know, you want them to within the textile environment. Well, obviously natural dyes were not necessarily formed to colour our textiles no. at all. So, so they're not purposely designed for it. 
And so they've got much more character. Also on a, on a, like a single, you could choose any natural dye plant and there's not just one colorant. So quite often a synthetic, so a synthetic version will be based on the main colorant for natural dye, where the actual natural dye plant itself could have several colorants. And from plant to plant, crop to crop, the percentages of those different colorants will change. Mm. And that's the skill of the natural dyers. That they're from one plant, even though in, in a sense you meant to say get say blue from it, then they can get the skill of them, they can modify the color. So you can get greens and blues and from a single plant because you've got these different colorants that they can kind of they're kind of like magicians but going back to dyes again um, I was talking to um, a lady in India recently who is um, working with some local artisans and she was explaining that the river that they live near work near has certain metallic properties to the water and that actually Mm -hmm. produces completely unique colors from these natural dyes from anywhere else yeah yeah because that is that's you know, I would say that there's so many modifiers. So even whether your water is hard or soft, that changes, that changes the dye as well. And they, and they all, they kind of work differently. So with a lot of natural dyes, you do need a third party substance to bind them to mm. the fiber. And they're nearly always metallic salts. And, okay. and obviously, you know, they're not that great because you're putting metallics into you know, into your dye baths, and then you're putting the fabric into those dyes. So you've got that, they you know they're called mordants, which yeah. are, which means bites, you know, it's helping the dyes to bind to the fibres. So, so you get a certain amount of colour fastness and light fastness and wash fastness and rub fastness and every other fastness property you can, you can name. So, um, so they have, so quite often they have to have that intermediary and so you're putting something in there which again and again there's a natural dyer she was working for a brand that I saw recently she actually they actually tested they took they took her finished um fabric that she just dyed and they tested for the residual amounts of metallic that she'd use she'd use aluminium which is probably the one of the least toxic mordants you can use and and she was quite pleased with how how low the actual residual amounts of aluminium was left within the dyed fabric. But that, that doesn't mean she still got it in all the rinsing water. And mm. so it's natural dye is not, it's not perfect. No, exactly. No, exactly. but so I think the, the idea that again, it's natural, it's, mm. and then where do, where do you get your mordant from? You know, you've got to, those substances have still got to be, to be made as well you know because they're metallic salts you've got to they can naturally occur in rocks and things like that but you've still got to extract them process and then it. yeah exactly. yeah exactly Any processing so that happens yeah has to be added in so and then yeah. indigo go back to indigo again that's that's a process you don't need a mordant so you right. think you think great but you have to reduce it somehow after like take the oxygen away so you make so you form into its soluble form and then as you lift the fabric out, it then reoxidizes again. So it goes to its insoluble form, and that's what binds it to the fabric. Oh, that's interesting. And there are different ways to reduce it. So you can use 
you know, you can use a chemical, sodium dithionite, something like that, which sounds a bit nasty. Mm, it does. Or you can use fructose. Okay. So they're kind of like going with your rice starch to the... Yeah. yeah. So you use moldy they, old fruit. Yeah. Excess fruit. Now, that yeah. sounds so, really good. So I've but, seen natural dyes use um, orange rind. But I'd love to briefly get you on the subject of plastics in our clothes, because obviously okay. it's been in the press a lot more now, but I still think a lot of people don't quite understand that polyester, nylon, those kinds of things are actually plastic. And where does plastic come from, Peter? This is it. I mean, you've, 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 got, to, you've got to have chemical plants all over the place that are making the precursor substances that you can form plastic from. And obviously from back then, they're coming from fossil fuels. They're coming from under the ground that's been there for like hundreds of years that they're extracting out. So it's, Oil, petrol. Yeah, yeah. Fra- you know, stuff. fracking. Yeah, and we're putting you know, it on our skin, you know. Yeah, so it's, you know, because I, I was interested in sportswear and things like that. It's just, it's very difficult. I would love to do... I would still, even now, even though I'm not that keen on actually designing something, producing it, selling it, because I think it's too difficult mm. and I don't have the sort of drive that I once had. But, um, but I would still like to do a sportswear garment, but mm. I really don't know what to use. I'm not sure because, you know, you've, I was again, I was looking at something from Woolwark this morning and, you know, they've got some fantastic knitting technology, seamless circular knitting machine so you don't have seams in the garment so it's a bit lighter and it's quicker manufacturing and yeah and you can put textures on the garment because you can lay stitches on top of each other so fantastic technology but quite often the wool is combined with a nylon yeah and i'm thinking and it's there because the nylon provides that you know bit of stiffness i mean the thing is with 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 the synthetic fibers like polyester uh, you know they're they're very stiff you know they're incredibly light you know and so I mean they've got I mean you have to realize why they're popular it's not you know obviously they've spent zillions in R&D trying to sort it all out which obviously natural fibers haven't necessarily had over the past 30 40 years mm. but they've got properties that are very difficult to duplicate with natural fibers mm. yes. you know and that is that is really difficult in sportswear. You know, I would love to do a sportswear garment, mm, but I would. And obviously, I don't want to use polyester and nylon, but rubber. But, <laughs> yeah, natural rubber. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah but some great companies making elastic with um, organic yeah. cotton and natural rubber. James Tailoring being one that I yeah. love. The whole plastic in our clothing. I think it's, the general public are going to click at some point very soon about. Not all of these things having plastic in. If you if stretch jeans have got plastic in, um, yeah. our socks have all got plastic in. Even yeah. advertising bamboo socks, these are great. And then you look, they've got um, polyester yeah. in there as well most of the time. Yeah, because you think because people think that again, you need to put a small percentage of plastic, mm. you know, like elastine, yeah. in you know, in socks because people want that stretch. They want yeah. that you know in them. If they don't work as well. They don't stick to your you know, there'd be floppy socks otherwise. You have to you know? wear garters. You have a yeah. garters yeah. on your on your yeah. calves. So it's um, it's it's a real problem. But and then obviously with all the the microfiber shedding, you know that well exactly the, the, yeah. the thing with you know that you can kind of guarantee that in a sense that the microplastic if you're using 
polyesters and nylons, then you're shedding microplastics, which yeah. are more permanent. You know, they're, they're less biodegradable. Exactly. Say. But then again, if you've got, a, you know, a natural fibre, which has been processed synthetically, that still may be like 30% synthetic mm. at the end of the garment oh, production. So yeah. I'd say I don't really have a lot of clarity. It is a can of worms. It is a can. The whole plastic enclosure is a huge... We could have a whole yeah. show. Maybe we'll have a whole yeah. podcast episode on the plastic. You, you could spend thing. your whole career just on dying. I yeah. Think. You could, yeah. And then it's that. It's quite it's so complicated. And so... And then... And if you want to disclose this information, how do you put it in a form that consumers can... I mean, that's another can of worms, isn't it? If it has. I mean, it's got to be come through education a bit, hasn't it? I mean, at the moment, kids um, learn chemistry at school. My two are learning chemistry at school. But maybe we need to be linking that up somehow with labelling and information so that when they're older, they can actually check and see what is in their clothing and in their food and in their daily life. I think if we, I think probably the best thing we can do is that if we can instill, you know, in a sense, what fashion revolution do, if we can instill, they don't just take, they don't just accept what the brands are telling them. Yeah. You know, so I would say ignore all the marketing because that's just the information that brands are happy to tell you. Ignore all that. The information that's more important is what they're not prepared to tell you. And be curious, you know, what fashion revolution is trying to get people to do is to ask questions. And yes, they're going to get fobbed off. There's no doubt about mm. that. But if they get bombarded, if everyone who bought something, you know, the next time everyone buys a garment and they, they just bombard that brand with questions about, then maybe they get so sick and they get yeah. overwhelmed. They would, you know, it's only going to change with mass consumer pressure but it is oh can we be bothered to do it you know because well i we just want lovely colors fabrics you know if the fabrics feel nice if the colors look great you know if the price is low enough we're happy and that's what the industry supplies you see yeah i think that's what the industry believes and a negative side might say that is the case, but I think some of it is that people don't even know that they need to be asking the questions yet. I think yeah. even just by having this conversation, we're saying, no, you need to ask these questions and then you might have the answers. And then when people do ask the questions, that's going to waken up some of the people inside the brands who don't know this stuff. Because, I mean, the customer service people, the people working in shops, they're not going to know this information. And that might make you feel a bit differently about selling things if you're not completely happy with what's in them. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that I don't necessarily know that much myself, but I would say that I'm, I'm quite, you know, I'm quite curious about stuff. But that's yes. because I train as a product designer. So I've always been interested in materials and, and how you make something. And I've always realised it's really difficult. Mm. You know, mm. just putting a hole in a sheet of metal requires a big machine to do it. You know, it's... Yes. I've watched the repair shop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> and when I was designing things and trying to get things made, you know, it's, it's so difficult. To it's really complicated. Make, yeah. Yeah. But as a consumer, this minefield is 
very difficult as well, isn't it? Because you're trying to do things with the best intentions for that, your health, the health of your family, the mm. health of the planet, whatever. And yeah. apart from the obvious thing of we've all got to buy less, we've all got to buy a whole yeah. lot less. What advice would you give to, this is the last question, I promise. The um, What's the, the best advice you would give to somebody who is going shopping? I think it just is, it's just being curious. Yeah. It's developing a curiosity of, you really don't know what you're buying. So do you want to find out more about it? Mm. You know, because unfortunately behind all the marketing, there is loads of downsides to, to the product that you're buying. And as we're, we're all becoming more aware that, you know, we're trashing so much yeah. the environment, whether it's, you know, our water supplies or anything else. And obviously with our clothes, it's, it's understanding that it's like a mass chemical soup process it's just it's chemical upon chemical upon yeah. chemical you know that's that's what it's all about and as we said a small number of those chemicals are pretty nasty stuff and they'll never and would you buy it yeah. if they said if they said oh we've got you know we use a little bit of a carcinogen in this no. would you buy it no you no. wouldn't but it, it is there and we didn't even get onto like EDCs, you know, with hormone disrupt chemicals, but it's they're in there. Yeah. Yeah. And you're buying it and you don't know they're in there. You're buying this yeah. and you're also buying these. When you're buying this garment, you're buying all this stuff as well. You know, you can make it. I think we'd buy I think we'd all have less stuff. I think we've all got this utopia vision where, you know, we can just buy all this stuff because we think we need it. And. And we, we're so far away because all the manufacturing takes place zillions of miles away. And it's the consequences of our products, our consumer products are, are pretty serious. And we need to know more about flaws of them. So we need to have that balance. We don't have any balance. We just have marketing. We've just got all the, all the gumph that we get, you know, from yeah. this is wonderful. This is, it's just this unrealistic view of our consumer goods that we buy from my point of view i've just got this stupid i just want the reality told mm. i mean that could be summed up and it's such a stupid thing because you would harm the selling of the product but but that's what no. we need to happen isn't it because well, you say you've spent all this money you spent millions getting your factory all getting a contract with a factory, spent all this money developing a product, you know, you're in debt up to your eyeballs, <laughs> yeah, and you've got to try and, and the investors want their return on their investment and you've got to sell the thing, you know, at that stage, which is the reality of that process, you've got to do everything you can to sell it to consumers. So mm -hmm. you don't want to tell anyone anything negative about it because you're going to, reduce getting all the money that you've just invested into it's a real dilemma is it because i've seen it both sides obviously on want, a really tiny scale but what you want from as as a consumer who loves the planet and um, wanting to make the world better we want people to know so that they actually buy less so that the circle goes yeah. round and we make less and less leaches in yeah. less chemicals leach into the environment anyway i'm going to end it here because i know you and i can go on for hours and hours and i, hours. <laughs> and I, I think i think that the um 
your general points are well received and I want to say thank you so much to Peter Gorse for your time and your insights and I know you keep telling us you don't know anything but it's really really apparent that you do know an awful lot so thank you so much for spending the time with us on the where does it come from podcast thank you. thanks Joe. thank you <laughs>